Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. All right, turning your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I've titled this message, Putting First Things First. And so Nehemiah chapter 9, and, and I'll give you an outline in just a minute on where we're going to be this morning. But as we learned last week, so to give you a recap from last week, we talked about Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been in Nehemiah for a while. And uh, so last week we talked out of Nehemiah chapter 8. We learned that God's people were told to stop mourning and start rejoicing. That was the prophetic word to them at that time was, you've been in mourning for so long, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you are thankful for the joy of the Lord? Because it really is a strength to us in difficult situations. You know, I, last night as I was just before the Lord and, and praying, as, as I do every week, I, I was reminded of that verse yet again. Even though I was preaching out of Nehemiah 9 this week, I was reminded of that verse. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And, and you know, my, my personality type, I can often be melancholy. I, if I get into stress, I can just lose all joy from my face, and you will think that I have just been so angry with everyone around me. That's, that's my personality type. I can lean towards that melancholy, and it's something that my wife consistently encourages me to work on. And if you're happy, tell your face, you know. And so I was complaining to the Lord last night. How many of you have ever complained to the Lord? Okay, don't act so holy this morning. Uh, I was complaining to the Lord, and he reminded me of that verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so that's not part of my message this morning, but I want to say to you, if you are in a situation where it seems the opposite of what you expect it to be, lean into the joy of the Lord so that your face will reflect what should be our inner reality. We should be the happiest people on the planet because we have the joy of our salvation. And the Bible declares that in His presence is the fullness of joy. And so if you're weak this morning, get into His presence because in His presence is where we're made strong and our strength is His joy. And so we should have that joy. But I talk about all that because then we get to chapter 9. You know, we talked about last week the, the, the tents of twigs, you know, that they had built. And so all of those are gone now. That, that feast is over and God's Word is brought back to central attention again. They've celebrated, they've enjoyed this, this celebratory moment. But then they hit this place where the jubilant praise has ended. And when we get to chapter 9, there's now a repentant sorrow that takes place. And Nehemiah 8 focused on God's Word as it was read, it was interpreted, it was applied. And then we get to chapter 9 and the people respond in prayer with genuine sadness about their sin. And as they listen to God's word again, they, they respond. And, and there are two principles that we have to live by as believers. The first is that we've got to hear God for ourselves. We've got to hear his word. We've got to be in fellowship with his word. We talked a lot about that last week. And in hearing his word, we need to respond to his word. And that's what happens in chapter 9. And in chapter 8, Ezra and Nehemiah, they comfort the afflicted. But in chapter 9, the comfortable are afflicted. And so the word, you know, comes. Joy and grief are, are two sides of the, of the same coin. And they have this thrilling encounter with God. There's this jubilant celebration. 
But now they have to face some things. And interestingly, you want to study the most powerful prayers ever written, and this is my opinion. All of them are found in chapter 9 of three separate books. In the book of Ezra, Daniel, and Nehemiah, those three prayers are some of those powerful prayers recorded. And Nehemiah 9, where we are, it, it records this extended prayer, which in fact is actually the longest prayer in the Bible outside of the Psalms. So if we remove the Psalms, this is the longest prayer in the Bible, is in Nehemiah chapter 9. One of my, my favorite theologians and preachers in history is D.L. Moody. Have any of you ever heard of D.L. Moody? So, so he, he calls on this guy to pray during a church service. And the man begins his prayer, and 10 minutes go by as this man is just droning on in prayer. And finally, Brother Moody stands up and he says, While our dear brother finishes his prayer, let's turn to number 312 and start singing. This prayer in Nehemiah is not that long, but it's a great model for us to study so that we can learn to put first things first. This prayer is, is for, la- for actually a good term, would be a mosaic. It's a beautiful mosaic of biblical quotations, of re- recollections, of images and phrases. And the Levites, who we talked about last week, they, they knew the Word of God. They had memorized it. It was in them. And they knew it, and they knew the language of the patriarchs and the prophets. And I want to put this outline before you because this confession accurately expresses the people's disappointment with themselves, but expresses their confidence in God. In other words, this declaration of guilt has two elements. Number one, they confess who God is, and they confess their sins. So here's our our outline this morning. Verses 1 through 6, and we'll break this down together this morning. They declare the greatness of God. In verses 7 through 30, they declare the goodness of God. And in verses 31 through 37, they declare the grace of God. And so if you will, Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to jump into verses 1 through 6 to start this morning. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. Aren't you thankful we don't have to do that anymore? Go out and find potato sacks and cover ourselves in ashes to fast. Fasting is hard enough without having to look terrible. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord. Their God for a fourth day, for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So for six hours, they read from the book of the law. And for another six hours, they worshiped. And we went out of church by 1130. (laughs) Now on the Levites platform, here's those names again, stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chananai. Wow, that's a name. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathathiah, said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are our Lord, are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, 
the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before you. What an incredible declaration. So here they are on the 24th day of the month. On our calendar, that would have been about October 31st. They were fasting. They were wearing sackcloth. They'd covered their head with dust. These were the common signs of mourning in the Old Testament. Verse 2, that they had separated themselves from those who had bad influence on them. As they heard the Bible read aloud, they no doubt came across Leviticus 20.26. This would have been a passage that they would have read. Leviticus 20.26. should be on the screen, but I'll just read it to you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Israel's history tells the tragic story of what happens when they don't make a break from the world. They had colluded with other nations. They had found themselves in the midst of all this great sin. And some of us, I think, get too cozy with the things of the world. God wants us to live distinctive lives that draw people to the Savior. Someone has said that separation without devotion to the Lord can become isolation. But devotion without separation is hypocrisy. We can separate ourselves without devotion, and that'll become hypocrisy. And when we both separate and devote, that's the key, y'all. Notice that they stood up and confessed not only the sins of their fathers, but their own sins as well. There was a solidarity in their guilt. As we learned last week, they couldn't wait to hear the word of God. Verse 3, we read that they spent all this time, six hours, reading the word of God, having it be read to them as the law of God is being read to them. It's exposing what's on the inside of them. I said last week that when you pick up this book, it's like a mirror. It begins to, to reflect what is on the inside of us. It becomes a tool. It is the tool that God uses to expose those things in our heart that keep us from being like Him. And then after they do that, they turn to worship. And, and I think that's the truth for us is that when we open the Word of God, when the Word of God becomes alive to us, it should inspire this place of worship. It should cause us to be drawn into a love affection with God. That when we have the word, it transforms us. Then in verses 4 and 5, it explains how they conducted the service. The Levites divided them into two groups. Some were standing on the stairs on one side of the assembly, and the other group stood across from them. These two groups called back and forth to the congregation, and it would go something like this. On one side, Lord, we have sinned against you. We have done these things. And when they had confessed, the other side would say, but how great and merciful are you, God? And it was this beautiful exchange taking place as one group was standing in proxy for everyone, confessing their sin, confessing what was going on. And then the other side would turn the affection back to the greatness of God. See, if we only confess our sin, we will be left in it. But in confessing our sin, we turn our affection back to God and we declare His greatness and that's where transformation takes place. See, I think 
for me growing up in, in, in Pentecost, it was we'd always done everything wrong. And God was waiting with some big club to, to hit us over the head and just tell us how awful we are. But there is a beautiful, if you will, dance that should take place of confession and exaltation. Confession and exaltation because I can't rescue myself out of my sin. I can't rescue myself out of what's gone wrong. But I know who can. So this beautiful exchange is taking place. I mean, it's, it's like this antiphonal chorus. The first group called with loud voices. It, it literally means they cried out. They were crying out their sin. It was a weeping, a travail. Oh God, we've sinned. But when the others would respond, they were singing. What an incredible thing. I would try and sing these words. It's not going to happen this morning. I will spare your ears from that. But I mean this beautiful exchange. The rest of the chapter gives us the exact words they used in Cries of guilt were followed by shouts of praise for God's greatness, His goodness, His graciousness. Tears of grief formed the lyrics of lament, while shouts of joy formed this anthem of adoration. I mean, y'all, when you read this, I, I just look at it and I go, God, you're so good. In verse 5, it says that the, the worshipers, if you will, that the Levites that were on the other side, they invite the people to stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. New American says, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Before they come to a time of necessary confession, they must first praise the one who alone can hear, pardon, and change them. God never changes and he will never go back on his word because he is eternal. He is faithful and just to forgive us. So then the prayer continues in the last part of verse five. It says, oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. In this chapter, the believers reflect on God's nature and character as well as his mighty works in history. Adoration is really the heart of true prayer. When we adore Him. If you're struggling with faith this morning, I want to say to you, it's probably because your view of God is too small or too narrow. Or it may be that your theology is fine, but you don't think God has much to do with your life today. I think far too many. I, I was reading a, a Pew Research study this week. And it honestly broke my heart. 72% of the people in this study did not believe that God was actively involved in their lives. These were believers. 72% did not believe that God had an active hand in their life. They treat him almost from the deist idea that he was the great clockmaker who wound it up and walked away. David Wells, a theologian, refers to this weightlessness of God. That people have a weightlessness. He writes that our sense of inadequacy or ineffectiveness can be traced to our limited understanding and experience of God. He says this, God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. We've made His truth too distant, 
His grace too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ too common. Friends, we must glory in the incomparable magnificence of our grand God. Verse 6 starts off with a clear statement of God's greatness that is grounded in the opening verses of Genesis. It says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. There is no one like God. The evidence of His greatness is seen in His works of creation. I love what Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. During the French Revolution, there was a movement to get rid of Christianity forever. One, on one clear night, an atheist both boastfully proclaimed his beliefs to a poor peasant. Everything will be abolished. Churches, Bibles, and the clergy. Yes, even the word God itself. We shall remove everything that speaks of religion. The peasant laughed. The atheist said, what are you laughing about? The peasant then pointed to the stars and replied, I was just wondering how you're going to manage to get rid of all those bright lights in the sky. Amen. It's always best to begin with the greatness of God. If we focus too much on what He gives us or on what we want Him to do for us, we may find our hearts becoming selfish. Do you see God as great this morning or is your God too small? I want to talk about the goodness of God now. Nehemiah chapter 9, I'm going to read a good portion here. But this is incredible. Let's do what they did at that time. Let's stand as we read this. This is a declaration of who God is. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into the raging seas. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them the just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. Come on, guys, get this this morning. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. And then they begin to repent. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen 
and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heavens. And you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities in a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hone cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who'd admonished them so they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of the oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Why don't you take a seat? The bulk of this chapter focuses on the goodness of God. God is very clearly the focal point as the word you is used over 50 times. In verses 7 through 15, he is the subject of every sentence and the word give is used in one form or another at least 16 different times. This part of the prayer rehearses the history of Israel, revealing God's goodness to his people and their repeated failure to appreciate his gifts and obey his will. 
George Santayana, the Spanish philosopher, said, he who forgets the past is condemned. Condemned. Wow, I became Southern right there to repeat it. Romans 15.4 helps us see the value. It says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. God's goodness is seen in four ways this morning. Number one, forming. In verses 7-18, through 18, the prayer begins with how God formed the nation of Israel. He chose Abram. He brought him out of Ur and made a covenant with him. Then when God's people were suffering in Egypt, verse 10 says that God made a name for himself by dividing the sea and releasing his people from bondage. In verse 13, they recall God's goodness in the giving of the law. And in verses 14 and 15, they praise God for how the newly formed nation was given possession of the land that was promised to them. After this protracted praise time where the focus is on God for his goodness, the choir of confession sings out words of guilt. But they became arrogant and stiff-necked, did not obey your commands. This is followed by a reply from the other side. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. How many of you are thankful he doesn't desert us even in our stiff neckedness? They are guilty, but God is good all the time. We are a real Pentecostal church. You would have said in all the time, God is good. The second way that God's goodness is, is, is displayed is in His leading. After the forming the nation, God was committed to lead His people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed Him. Verse 19 makes it clear that because of His great compassion, He kept that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire to lead them in the way that they should go. Verse 20 says that God gave His Spirit to the people to provide their, for their spiritual requirements and food and water to meet their spiritual needs. Verse 21 says, For 40 years their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. He was faithful in leading them even when they were rebellious. The third thing is He provided. God's goodness is seen through His forming of the nation by, by how He led them on a daily basis. He also provided them with everything they, need that they needed. He helped them defeat their enemies. He helped them conquer cities. He helped them uh, go into the places he had said. He multiplied their numbers by blessing their children. I think verse 25 is one of the best summaries. It says they captured fortified cities and fertile land. He didn't give them dry, dead land. It was fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, Wells were already dug, vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full. And the New American says, and they grew fat. I thought, Lord, is that really what I think it means? Yep, they got fat. Another translation says, well-nourished. We'll be more PC here. Well-nourished. They reveled. In your great goodness. Did you catch that? God gave them more than they deserved. They had been a rebellious people. 
and he gave them fertile land, houses already furnished, water was already running, and the fruit was just waiting to be picked. That word reveled, it says they reveled in God's greatness. It literally means they luxurated. They experienced luxury at the hand of God. In a similar way, God has given us everything we need as well. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. That leads to a question. Are you luxurating in God's goodness today? Or are you taking Him for granted? Amen, Moses. You preach it, buddy. Are you focused more on what you don't have? And then here's another way that God's goodness is revealed. Correcting. Verses 26 through 30. I know that's my response to Moses. After singing God's praise for His wonderful provision, the other choir hangs their heads and sings in a dirge-like manner. They remembered how their fathers acted in the book of Judges. Verses 26 through 30 is what we read. This is called defiance. Judges says they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put their law, they put their law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. They committed awful blasphemies. They knew what God wanted because he had made it very clear. And even though every one of their needs was met, they still were rebellious. Killed the prophets. And instead of praising God for his goodness, they blasphemed him. As a result, verse 27 tells us that God corrected them by handing them over to their enemies. I want you to notice how God's goodness pervades his personality. I kind of picture this praise choir, if you will, singing the last stanza of verse 27, fortissimo, with great strength, with great loudness. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers from the hand of their enemies. And as they hold that final note from the other side of the congregation, the confession choir rises to its feet and sings in my mind, I love music, like a requiem of confession. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what evil was in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. But then the other side comes back again. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time and time and time again. By the way, aren't you glad that God delivers us time and time again? Time and time again. And we could go back and forth, back and forth. God corrected them by sending their enemies to rule over them. God used successive world powers to both punish and correct them. First, it was Assyria, then it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was Greece, and finally Rome destroyed Jerusalem. But all of this was done because he's a good God. He demonstrates that fact clearly 
through the forming of his nation, by leading them, by providing for them, and yes, by correcting them. Corey Tinboom writes this, Deep in our hearts we believe in a good God, yet how shallow is our understanding of his goodness. How often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic and look how lovely the weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. This broke me off. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. Two years ago, some of our dear friends lost their little boy in a terrible accident. And as I was talking with him about that day, I admire his ability to respond in, in, in theology of understanding how good God is because as he reached the hill where he recognized his little boy was gone, he knelt on his knees and he said, God, you are still good. And I think sometimes our shallowness of the goodness of God prevents us from actually accessing the goodness of God. Accidents happen and people survive. God is a good God. Our friend's son dies and God is a good God because God is good all of the time despite our circumstances. And when we understand the goodness of God, some of us mistakenly thank God for His goodness when things go the way we want them to go. And the real challenge and test of our discipleship is to thank Him for His goodness even when we experience pain and loss because God is great and He is good and His goodness does not change, church, just because our circumstances aren't good. There is one more part of His character that is given prominence in this chapter, and that is that he is gracious. Verses 31 through 37. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. And I love how this ends. Now, therefore... I love that word, therefore, when I find it in the Bible. It's such a good word. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and in all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil days." deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundance produces for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. 
They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. The praise team sings out again in verse 31, but in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. God does not treat his people as they deserve. And that's a good thing because he is great. He is mighty. He is an awesome God. Because he is a God of grace, he is good to his people, even when they're not good to him. In his mercy, God didn't give them what they deserved. And in his grace, he gave them what they didn't deserve. Verse 33, however, you are just in all what has come upon us. You have acted faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. The grief team finishes this chapter by singing about the wrong things the people had done and how they are slaves to others because of their sins. Did you notice the change in the pronouns here? Instead of focusing on their sins, the people now say, we did wrong. I want to say until we can personally own our specific transgressions, we will miss out on experiencing the grace of God. The closing stanza ends on a jarring note. We are in great distress. The people recognize that generation after generation, the same sin problem seems to come back. Some of you here this morning are brave enough to admit that you're in great distress. You have your own history of good intentions that fell apart. You've seen the cycle of sin in your life where you mess up and then repent and confess, then walk with God and then sin and repent and confess all over again. And God delivers you time and time again. God doesn't just offer help from heaven. He offers help from the inside to those of you who are born again. It is possible to change. God invests himself in us in ways that we discover over a lifetime. We don't have to stay in our sin cycle. Jesus has joined us in the process, and that is indescribably good news. We have a royal, a divine, a permanent companion, an advocate in Christ. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus' ministry to us in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. There's that word again, therefore. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for our help at the time of our need. Isn't that good? Instead of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing, over and over again when we're struggling and failing, being tempted in the midst of the battle, let's draw near to Him. Let's covenant together. God isn't sitting back waiting for us to fail. That was one of the greatest revelations I ever had when I understood who Father God was. He wasn't sitting back waiting for me to mess up. He was my high priest my advocate waiting for me to run to him so that I may succeed. Oh, there's grace 
There is mercy, there is companionship, and there is strength through Jesus. Not just when we have tears of gladness, but when we have tears of grief. So let's draw near to him. This entire chapter speaks of grace. God demonstrates his greatness and his goodness. And what do the people do? They turn from him. They run from his word. They persist in doing things in their own way. In short, they sin repeatedly. And at any point, God could have said, I'm done. You've messed up too much. You're on your own. Just go away. And this was before Jesus. This was before the advocate. And while he did send some correction into, our, into, his li- into their lives, he never stopped loving them. When they sinned, God exhibited his grace. I love what Romans 5.20 says. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. King James, someone quoted King James just a second ago, but where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. Read a story from Max Lucado this week about a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world. It says this, discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing. Pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the bus to the city. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up, and when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that before were unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search in bars, hotels, and nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went to them all, and at each place she left a picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. She reached the bottom of the stairs. Her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Friend, no matter what you've done or who you've become, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants you to come home. Verse 38, it says that the people made a binding agreement and put it into writing. It says, now because of all of this, 
We are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. What does this mean? It means it was personal, it was practical, and it was public. Amber, if you'll just, not the song that I sent you, the other one we normally use. There are three things this morning. First is personal. What do you need to do this morning? First of all, do you personally see God as great, as good, and as gracious? If not, I want you to determine to lock into these truths, to never doubt again that He is good. He is great. He is gracious. Personalize your faith by making it real. Practically, or second, practical. Based on who he is, what is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do right now? What practical steps does he want you to implement? And third, public. How can you make your decision for change public? Maybe it's plugging into a small group that are starting here in a few weeks. Maybe it's talking to someone in church and saying, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm changing. These are the things that God is wanting me to work on. If you're a believer and have never been baptized, maybe you need to take that step this morning. Maybe in just a moment you could slip out of your chair during our closing song and come forward. Maybe you need to confess something. I believe so strongly in the Word of God and in the Holy Spirit's ability to apply His Word that I'm going to allow this closing this morning to be open-ended. We're going to put on a different song in just a few minutes, but before we do that, I want us to take communion this morning. If you're a believer this morning, you have the incredible opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. We have ones that actually have bread in them now. No more styrofoam wafers. You also have a nice little chalice there. Feel liturgical this morning. This morning, I want us to take communion because it so represents the price Jesus paid. If you're struggling in any area this morning, so we partake communion. I want you to remember the price that he paid for you. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. When he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. There's healing in the broken body of Jesus. If you need healing this morning as we take communion, let's believe for that. He took it and he said, I'm allowing my body to be broken for you. This morning, I want us to pray. Father, thank you so much for the broken body of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice in the garden, at the whipping post, and on that cross. I thank you this morning. Let healing come. In Jesus' name, let's take an eat.
took that cup, lifted up, and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. I'm thankful there's still power in the blood to wash away sin, that there's forgiveness available. This morning as we drink this cup, I want you to first take a moment. If you need forgiveness for anything, I want you to take a moment. Say, Lord, forgive me for whatever it is between you and the Lord. If you need to forgive someone this morning, you need to release forgiveness. I want you to do that. Jesus, we focus on you this morning. We thank you. We forgive those who have hurt us. And we ask forgiveness for the things we've done wrong. We thank you there is power in your blood. We take and we drink this morning in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingcenter.us.